And that's it. Like, I feel like, you know, some people have hobbies that cost them money. Like my hobby is making money. Like I really like finding these different things that I could do to spend time. Like if I have free time, like I do like shopping. I like, you know, finding what I could sell. I like go, if I see an estate sale sign and I have like 20 minutes, like I'll walk through it and see what's going on. Like... Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Fi Show, but I couldn't be doing this without my awesome co-host, Cody. Cody, what's going on? Hey, what's up, man? I'm currently chilling in Omaha, Nebraska, so my jokes might be a little extra corny this episode. (laughs) (laughs) How about you, man? Well, your jokes are always corny, but for me, I'm recovering from you know a little oral surgery. I had some wisdom tooth taken out, some stuff done to my gums, but thank goodness for this free health care you know, from the military. Heck yeah, man. But enough about me and you. I think we should dive into our guest of the episode, Robert from The College Investor. And he just brought an angle that I haven't really seen too many people talk about within our five space. Justin, what do you think about the episode? Yeah, I thought it was awesome. And I thought that like, yeah, and he gave that cool different take on how he kind of stayed in this one career that he started when he was 16. We're not used to seeing that. We're used to seeing people take up a job after they graduate college, or maybe they take a trade, but he kind of did something in between. But let's not give away his whole story. How about we let him tell the story? Robert, take it away. Yeah, so my money story, I've always just been a hustler. I like to earn more money. That's probably like my earliest memory, I guess. I mean, I have earlier ones. I used to sell candy bars in middle school for my backpack because I wanted to go to Blockbuster and rent a video game. Man, that probably really dated myself now because I'm sure that people, we just don't do that anymore, right? But yeah, like I remember, you know, sitting with my dad and helping him with his taxes. And my dad had this old desktop PC where he would have Quicken. (laughs) <laughs> and he would be updating his checkbook register manually, right? Like he'd like take his checkbook register and then enter it into the computer. And I'd sit there as like a, a young kid just next to him on the floor. One, I thought it was so cool that he was on the computer. And then two, it's like he's working on money stuff, which was pretty cool as well. So yeah, I mean, I just don't know. I have all these different little snapshots throughout time, but they've all been like positive money influence stories um, that I think kind of shaped me as, uh, you know, I grew up kind of thing. So now to kind of piggyback off of that, so it sounds like your dad was an entrepreneur of sorts, or at least he was doing the books for something, some kind of business. So could you just talk a little bit about your upbringing? Like were your parents entrepreneurs? Did they know about financial independence and those types of things? No, not at all. So my dad was in the Navy and then followed that up with like a career as a defense contractor for like, you know, 20 years and like nine to five job for his whole life and really viewed my idea to venture into entrepreneurship as kind of dumb. (laughs) Like, what are you doing? That's not what you do. That's terrible. And same thing with my mom. My mom worked for the city government for like 35 years, you know, has a retirement plan there, just retired, you know, age 65. And that's, you know, what she did from when she was, you know, right out of college at 22 till retirement. And that's both of my parents, how they operated, but they saved they have their retirement plans, they have rental property. So they did put their money to use in savings throughout their careers. And so I did see that growing up. And I think that was probably a very good influence on me subconsciously, right? So growing up in a household where both parents are having those very stable government type jobs, did you have any idea, like as you're getting older in high school, getting ready to go to college, that you wanted to go a different path? Or did you think you'd fall down something similar? Totally. And you have to remember I did, right? So like I started working at Target when I was 16. And my mom kind of said, like, if you want to have a car, you need to go work. And so I did that. And even when I went to school, I still worked full time all the way through getting my four year degree in college. I was working 32 to 40 hours a week. I was attempting to pay as much of my own way as I could. And, you know, after college, I just continued on the same career path. I stayed at Target, got promoted up. I was making good money and I worked at Target for about 17 years altogether before I left. So, you know, I still had a very traditional kind of employment. And yes, it was a lot earlier and younger than most. But I mean, I kind of viewed that as my path. I didn't I had no plans to leave that, you know, even though I had all these side hustles going on. And what was your undergraduate degree in since you ended up staying at Target? So I started uh, as a computer science major. 
Okay. And I hated coding. So <laughs> if you've ever done computer science, right, you sit in a basement computer lab as like a freshman and you code all the time. So I actually really like the logic and the math and all that stuff, but I just could not see myself coding forever. So I ended up switching to political science and economics, and that's what I graduated with. Uh, yeah, kind of different, right? But then when it comes to blogging, I think it all comes together, right? We do computer stuff, we do website stuff, and we write. So <laughs> I don't know. It all works. It worked out. So during this target journey, I know you mentioned, and I know that you worked there for quite a long time, 17 years, you said, but you were still that kid who was selling candy out of his backpack. Like you don't just get rid of that entrepreneurial itch. So did you kind of step foot into any other ventures during that 17 year span before you got into the college investor? Yeah, I mean, all throughout high school, I was, besides working, like I was always like trying to make money. So I was, one of the things I did was sell stuff on eBay and Amazon. So I would go to garage, first I sold my own stuff. So like I had my old Super Nintendo and things that were just laying around. And I was like, I bet I can get a couple hundred bucks for this. And I did. And then that was <laughs> cool. And then it's like, what else could I sell? And I had Magic the Gathering cards, right? And uh, I sold those. And then I sold a bunch of other stuff. And then when I ran out of stuff to sell of my own, I started going to estate sales and garage sales and finding things that I was familiar with. And I was flipping that stuff on eBay and Amazon. And shoot, I still do that today. My wife and I, you know, we're recording this right now, right before the holidays. And so my wife was scouring the deals, like what's the hot stuff? And we bought a bunch of, I don't know, like air Dyson curling irons, right? <laughs> and we've been flipping those things on eBay right now, making 50 bucks a pop. So like, you know, it still have that bug all the way to today. Oh, man. I just love that though, because no matter how successful you get, no matter what your career is, it's always those roots that keeps you going and just kind of keeps you true to who you are. And so I love that you're <laughs> still flipping for 50 bucks. And that's it. Like, I feel like, you know, some people have hobbies that cost them money. Like my hobby is making money. Like I really like finding these different things that I could do to spend time. Like if I have free time, like I do like shopping. I like, you know, finding what I could sell. I like go, if I see an estate sale sign and I have like 20 minutes, like I'll walk through it and see what's going on. Like, you know, I enjoy that. So you obviously had that, you know, that entrepreneurial side, that that hustle side where you're looking to make money, but you were doing things that you knew, like you mentioned, like things that you were already into and that you had control over. So at what point do you kind of swap from just doing things like that to getting into investments in the stock market where you don't have control over it? Yeah, well, you know, honestly, I think I got the wrong start and I'll be totally honest with you in this. Like, what really got me the itch in investing was I had a few early wins. Like I picked some individual stocks and like I, you know, hit 300% returns on them. And granted, like, I mean, my $500 investment went to like 1500 bucks. But like, you know, when, when you're like, you know, 20 years old, 19 years old, that's freaking awesome. So, you know, I, I knew it was important to save and I knew it was important to invest. I didn't necessarily know how to, but I, had some early wins. I was really passionate about it. And, you know, that's kind of where the blog and everything came together too. Like I was reading about other people, what they were doing. I was reading other personal finance blogs and I always enjoyed computers. Like I could do this too. So like when the college investor first started, it really was my random side project where I was going to share my random investment tips with the world. And uh, luckily, none of those posts still exist on the site. They've all been purged <laughs> out. But like, if you were to go back in the archives, maybe you can find them in the Wayback Machine. I don't know. But like, there was things like you should buy Microsoft or you should buy this stock or you should do this. And like some 19-year-old kid's silly trading ideas, which is totally not the right way to go. But it was early wins and then lessons learned. Because then, of course, you know, you, you follow up those wins. I definitely lost quite a bit of money, broken even, and then like really learned about low-cost index fund investing, just stashing it away, what kind of accounts to use. And, you know, that was just kind of an iteration as I learned through blogging and my own follies through the stock market. So for our listeners who don't know, when did you start your blog, the very first post you ever wrote? And who was your inspiration? Because... Back when you started blogs, blogging wasn't exactly like a household term and like everyone was a blogger, kind of like in 2018 where there's hundreds and thousands of bloggers now. Yeah. So my first post was in September of 2009. So a little over nine years ago at this point in time. And I was reading other blogs. So uh, Consumerism Commentary, Get Rich Slowly were a couple of the ones that I remember. Get Rich Slowly is, is still around, right? Consumerism Commentary technically is still around, even though um, it's definitely in a different form than it was back then. And then there was just countless others that I've read over the years, but I really found it interesting and inspirational seeing what other people are doing 
people were sharing their personal stories, people were sharing their personal thoughts. And, you know, I also read the mainstream stuff like Yahoo Finance and Money Magazine. And so you could see like real publications and what people were doing. And I found that inspirational. So it's 2009. How old were you at that point? Let's see. I, shoot, I don't know. Let's do some math here. Trick question. Right? 24. I was 24 at that time. I was wrapping up my last year of school. Okay. And were you married or anything at that point? No, I I was with my wife. We weren't married. We got married probably about a year later. Okay. And I'd heard somewhere else that you maybe had an odd living situation right up until you got married. Odd living situation. I don't (laughs) know if it was odd. Like I was living at home for the most part. And then we bought a house and we moved into that house together. Yeah. I I was just wondering how that was. Like how was living at home? And is that something that you would recommend to people as they're trying to get that that jumpstart out on the financial independence. Was it worth it to you to, you know, some people view that as not kind of getting to step out on their own, but financially, is that something you recommend to people? Absolutely. I recommend it, but I think you have to live at home knowing that you have an end goal. So you have to realize that at 24 years old, my wife and I had both lived at home. We'd been together for a few years before that. And in the time that we lived at home, we had amassed enough money together to buy a home in San Diego. And so we bought a, you know, $500,000 plus home with 20% down because we'd saved all that money for the past five years times two people, right? I'm not doing it by myself, (laughs) but yeah, I, I totally recommend it, but you have to do it with purpose. You can't just live at home. And then as you get a real job and you earn a lot of money, like you start spending lavishly and, and not saving, like that doesn't do anything for you. And at that point in time, if you're a parent, you're just kind of enabling, you're not helping. Yeah, no, that's a huge start to do that at, in your 20s. So I think Justin's just jealous because I'm still living at home and uh, my savings rate higher than yours. I'm huh, Justin. <laughs> I am jealous. I wish I could live at home, but unfortunately, it would be a 20-hour commute for me. So it'd be, be a little tough. <laughs> right. But I mean, that's it. So it, it, it really is thinking about your savings rate. So I think it, it's interesting when you say you live at home, like you should be saving 75% of your income. And I think my wife and I were both able to pack that away for a good couple of years, I was in school, but I was working full time and she was already working full time. And we were saving substantial amounts of money every single month and every single year to be able to afford a house. Well, plus you're doing it at such a young age, which is, you know, obviously much more powerful than doing it later in life. So you're, you're getting into those prime years, you know, really set up for your future. Right. And then, I mean, at the same time, I was side hustling. So that was supporting us. You know, the side hustles kind of helped us eliminate my student loan debt pretty quick because I, I didn't have everything figured out, too. So, like, I was earning a lot. I was saving a lot. I was still taking on student loans. <laughs> like, you know, it, it doesn't all have to be this picture perfect story right away. Like, you could still make steps, take steps forward and steps backwards. But I think the key is saving that money. Something I find interesting is some of the most successful people are entrepreneurs, one, and then they have these frugal roots too. So were those frugal roots passed down from your parents or is that something you kind of picked up and realized, I need to save this percentage of my income to retire at this age or become financially independent at least? So I don't consider myself a frugal person. I spend intentionally, but I don't necessarily spend cheaply. I'm a big believer in earning more. So when I say like my savings rates, like 50% of my income, it's only that way because like if I want to spend something, like I need to go out and hustle and earn it and figure out how to do it. I mean, I shop at Nordstrom's. If you guys are looking at me, I have a nice car behind me, even though we only have one car because it's intentional, right? So like I drive for Uber and we only have a family car or not drive for Uber. I ride in Ubers all the time. I don't, I don't own my own car. So I think my spending though that we do do is extremely intentional and I don't buy a lot of junk. I don't buy things I don't need. Everything has a use, but it's very intentional spending. So the one thing was you mentioned you started blogging right there as you're finishing up college. You're about to get married, get in a house. But you mentioned that you did take out some student loans. And obviously, as the name implies, college investor, how many student loans did you have and what did that look like? I finished school with $43,000 in student loan debt when I was done. And we were able to pay that off in about three and a half years by the time it was said and done. So that was through side hustling and earning more money in our day jobs. And, you know, my wife and I went at it together, too. So I wouldn't say like it was like I was in my own silo with money. So I think when it comes to couples and money, I'm a big believer that you got to attack those goals together. Like, even though it's my student loans, like she didn't have any student loans and she viewed it as our debt, though. And like our money went to one pot one pot paid everything, get rid of it as fast as humanly possible. And that's what we did. So you found the house and did the down payment and then paid off the student loan. Yeah. And honestly, I don't think it started that way. Like, I mean, we were paying the minimums. We actually, our house was a fixer. 
Like, even though it was like 500K, like that's a fixer in San Diego. So, <laughs> like, we were putting a lot of sweat equity into that on nights and weekends. And so, there was a lot of money going to the house for the first few months as well. But then, after like everything was kind of settled, the dust was settled, done with school, it was all like hardcore. Let's get rid of that debt. But you bought it in 2009. So, I'm assuming if you've sold it, that you probably came out pretty well on it. We did come out pretty well on it. Yeah, we bought it at probably one of the lowest points right after the Great Recession right there. So that worked out. We bought a fixer at that time and then we sold it probably like three years later and then went to our next house. So yeah, and then we decided we never want to do a fixer again because that sucks. (laughs) Were you fixing it and living in it at the same time? A little bit. Yeah. Like we were fixing it for a little bit and then like, you know, things just drag out longer than you expect. So then we moved in and like we're still wrapping up things. All right. So I kind of want to hop back into your wage earning story. So we were kind of focused on your side hustles. You do a lot of entrepreneurial stuff, but you stayed at Target for 17 years. And I highly doubt knowing the type of guy you are that you hated it the whole time. And so I'd love if you could kind of shed some light on how people can just get more satisfaction out of their jobs. Because something you hear a lot in the FI community is just absolute hatred of your job. You hate going to work. You don't like it. So I'd kind of love if you could tackle that because retail isn't often the most glorious job type. You know, it's not, but I actually really enjoyed it. So I think every job I've learned because I had some really crappy moments at Target and it all revolved around my boss. And I think that's a common theme that I hear from everybody is that when times were good at Target, I had a great boss. And where times were crappy at Target, it's because I had a crappy boss. And yeah, the company went through changes and things changed, but it's kind of who you work for and who you work with that really sets the tone of your happiness. And so the cool thing was, as I continued to promote through Target, I was the boss. First, I was the assistant manager. So there was only one person above me and then our district manager. And then I was the store manager. And so like in retail, like when you are the store manager, it's like you're on your little island there. You see your district manager you know, maybe once or twice a month, if that, and that's usually, you know, you might see him more if you're doing poorly or things are going wrong, but if things are going well, you don't see him. Like it was a few texts and phone calls, but like, you know, it was my house, it was my store. And so I hired people I wanted to work with. They did a great job. We ran things well. And so it was enjoyable. I really liked it. But the times I didn't like, it was all because I had a crappy boss that didn't communicate with me, that didn't set clear expectations. And then like, you know, it was kind of dirty and was like, you're not meeting the unclear expectations. Like, why aren't you doing that? And that really sucked. It made you feel bad. It made you not want to come to work. And I mean, honestly, I thought about leaving Target a few times over the years. And then, you know, I had my blog and I was like, I could do this full time. And then, you know, I got a new boss and I was like, oh, I like this again. And my blog's not stable. (laughs) So I don't want to go do that full time. And I'm really glad I waited. Like, I probably could have left Target like two to three years before I did. But during that time, like the blog had replaced my day job income. And I was still making my day job income. So all it enabled us to do was save so much more. And by the time I retired, it was kind of like if the internet shuts off tomorrow, like we'll still be okay. Because you even, you know, when you're okay, you run through all these risk scenarios, right? Like what's the worst case scenario? Like what happens if like you internet turns off and we go through a recession and like this and that and like every possible (laughs) scenario that could go wrong, right? And so it is a nice feeling that when you leave, I left on a high note. I was a top performer. Like I was a shock to everyone that was leaving. And like the side business was doing great and, you know, already enabled us to achieve everything we wanted to do financially effectively. So as you moved up the ranks in Target, so as a, I don't even know what the entry level position is, like a clothing folder shelf stalker. Yeah. I mean, like you work on the, I worked as a car attendant and then I was a cashier and, you know, then I just keep working my way up. I was a front lane supervisor and, you know, I did that all the way through college and I worked in pretty much every position in the store by the time I was an assistant manager and then the store manager. And so as you're coasting up the promotion escalator, what does the pay look like and how do those pay increases happen over time? Yeah, I mean, it all depends on where you're located, right? So in Southern California, even a base team member now starts at like $12 an hour, a little bit more than minimum wage in the state. And I know that's pretty common elsewhere. Like you go up into the Bay Area, like a team member might start at like $15, $16 an hour. It's all relative, right? And you go to the Midwest, it might be lower. And then you go up to an hourly supervisor which is usually in like the 15 to 18, maybe $20 an hour range. I think when I left, I was like making about $18, but this was like 10 plus years ago, right? So it's all kind of scaled up since then. And then an assistant manager, like these are usually people that are out of college or have worked in retail for a long time and got promoted internally. 
And, you know, you might make fifty to $55,000 a year as your starting salary. But the cool thing is at that level is that where you can start getting a bonus. And that's where like you get a bonus based on your store's performance. And they always change the metrics, right? It used to be like 100% on your store's performance. And then it was like half corporate performance, half store performance. <laughs> but, you know, it could be anywhere from like 5 to 10, up maybe 15% of your salary as an assistant manager. So you figure, I think when I was an assistant manager, I was about $90,000 a year plus like a a 10%, 15% bonus each year, depending on how everything did and all shook out at the end. So, you know, you're pushing six figures as an assistant manager. And there's definitely assistant managers that have been there longer than I was that were easily in the six figure just as their base. And then, you know, going from there. And then as a store manager, you probably start about 110, 120. Cool thing with a store manager though, is your bonus is up to 60% of your pay. Wow. Mm. And that's where the money is. So if you (laughs) run a really good store... And, you know, you start getting your base pay up there into the 130, 140, 150. It wasn't uncommon for the best store managers in our areas to be clearing 200 plus thousand a year on a good year, especially they've been doing it a long time and know what they're doing. And then, you know, you also start getting into things like stock options and long-term incentives and, and different things. And once again, it's all this hybrid though. It's your store and the company performance. So like it sucked because I had some great years where it's like my store was dialed. I should have gotten my full bonus and the company did bad. And you're like, ah, I got like <laughs> half my bonus, right? And, and so that's always frustrating, but the potential is there. And I think people don't realize that, but you have to realize too that most stores, they're running 30 to $100 million businesses that employ, you know, 150 to 300 plus people across various levels. So like, you know, there is a high level of responsibility and leadership and different things that are required to do it. And I think people are like, when they start thinking about it, it kind of makes sense. But I don't think most people realize that on the surface of retail, but this is large box retail too. We're not talking like, you know, the little boutique stores that are in the mall, right? And on your climb up the ladder in Target, do you think that your college degree actually affected that at all? Or could you have made that same climb without it? Now, Target was silly. When I was graduating college, they had this weird thing where it's like, we want everyone to have a college degree. So for me, it was the enabler to get to the assistant manager position. But honestly, it's not required. They brought in a lot of people that just had a degree with no leadership skills, and they all failed, screwed up things, got fired left messes behind. So like, I genuinely don't believe the college degree is necessary. Now it might be necessary politically, but it's not necessary to necessarily be successful. And so if you can overcome the politics of your store or your work, because it's going to apply across different things, not just retail, you know, if you can overcome the politics, I think uh, a degree is kind of irrelevant especially once you get past like two to three years after graduation, like you never use your degree anymore. It's, it's more about your experience. Let me pull up my notepad, my golden pen. The college investor just said that college isn't necessary. (laughs) I said it's not necessary depending on the politics of your workplace, you know, or if you're going to like, what is it? If you're going to be a doctor, please get a degree to work on me. Please get a degree if you're going to be a doctor. Please get a degree to work on me. So, Robert, I mean, is this typical at any of those big box retailers like Kohl's, your Walmarts, those types of stores? Is everyone making in that range? I know you might not have the exact number yeah. inside no, scoop. No, it is because once you've been doing it for a long time, you get the recruiter calls, you see people leave, you see people come, you know where you're hiring from. So, yeah, I would say it's very typical for most large box retailers, um, the Walmarts, the Kohl's, you know, definitely the Targets, and even some larger chain, smaller retailers have higher salaries than you would expect. Like a Starbucks store manager might be making in the 80000 to $90,000 range to run a Starbucks, you know, depending on their experience. So it's definitely possible depending on, like I said, it's large box though. You have a lot of complexity and a lot of people and a large staff and different things to do. So if you would have stuck around to try to make that district manager job, do you have any idea what that would have looked like? Yeah, you know, and that's where it's like diminishing returns. So I always think too, like the safest place to ever be in retail is the store manager. Because when the shit hits the fan, which it will, they downsize, right? And they consolidate districts and they lay off assistant managers and employees. But the one person that will never leave any store ever, there will always be a store manager of every store. Maybe they're not paid the same. Maybe they get a pay cut, maybe something. But like in the retail space, that is the safest place to be. 
as things change and shake out. I've seen it happen through multiple cycles in my 17 years through the Great Recession. Like as they change things, like store manager, as long as they perform, they're always safe, but they don't, they're not subject to org chart changes. District managers are. They'll realign those things. They'll cut those payrolls. They'll make them have more work because they're expensive and they're not like directly in the store selling stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a, I would have never thought of that, but that makes total sense when you explain it like that. <laughs> so I'm sure we're going to have a lot of listeners who are like, wait a second, I can do that. I'm wondering if there's any courses or just soft skills or things that people should practice to actually be successful in these types of roles. Absolutely. So I see this, I saw this too much at Target and I still see it today is the biggest problem I see is that people cannot communicate. So when I started working at Target 17, I don't know, I was probably interviewing people like 15 years ago when I was a, an hourly supervisor, I would do interviews. And when we would hire someone at Target, it was about three interviews to every hire. And today when I left Target, we were at about seven to eight interviews for every hire. And you know what? why? is because they were terrible communicators. Everything you do in retail, and I would say this, everything you do in every entry-level job across America, I'm gonna throw that out there as just a blanket statement, is easy. There is nothing that requires any type of specialized knowledge or skills or anything. At Target, you, like you, you said, you're a shirt folder or you stock boxes, or if you're a cashier, you run boxes across a scanner and you push the total button. There's nothing I can't teach you in your job. But what I can't teach you is how to talk to people, to be nice, and to have a positive attitude. And that is what is missing, especially in retail. And if you can communicate well, you will go so far in retail. It, it just is astounding to me. Whether that is in a sales role in retail or whether that is in a management supervisory role in retail. And I think that's true across anything. It's communication. And the other part is problem-solving skills. This doesn't always come out in the email, or not in the email, in the interview. But once you're hired because you had great communication skills, if your problem-solving skills come to light because you can troubleshoot on your own and you don't ask people silly questions because you just think about it a little bit and like you do it, boom, you're going to start moving up so fast because that is what's required in all these jobs. And honestly, that's what we see is missing a lot. I'm talking like people are on their phones in interviews. People are answering them. People can't, hey, tell me a little about yourself. Like they just can't do the basics and they're not getting jobs in retail, which should be the simplest jobs to get, but they just can't communicate and or be nice because I can't teach you how to be nice to strangers. And it almost sounds cliche, but I totally see where you're coming from because I've noticed from people I know who are wildly successful, you don't have to be the best person on Microsoft Excel. You don't have to be an expert programmer. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. You just have to be able to talk to people and make connections. Because at the end of the day, it's a people game. It's totally a people game. It, and you know what? If you want to get promoted, you're going to make your boss happy. If you can talk and you can problem solve, so you're not that guy asking the dumb questions, like your boss will be happy. You'll get rewarded. Like when things come around, like you might get offered those because like they like you. <laughs> like it's, it's pretty common sense, but I think people don't realize this, that that's what it takes. And, and sadly, it's missing in a lot of places. And, and that was a bummer to see because it was painful to try to hire when it should be, we're in the greatest job market of all time, supposedly, and stores are struggling to hire people, not because of applicant flow, but because of quality. Yeah, I mean, it's curious as to if maybe it's something to do with just all the, the technology that we have in our cell phones and things like that, where people aren't talking to each other as much, so you don't practice those skills as much. And then with problem solving, you know, you can just ask your Google Dot or whatever you have <laughs> in your house and Google it online and get the answer kind of just thrown to you and you don't really have to think through it. And I, I think you're right in that. I heard Gary V say this the other day on a podcast and he said, don't dismiss the millennials. They are actually the most communicative generation ever. But the problem with them is that they're having seven conversations via text on their phone and they're talking to all their friends at a level that we've never seen before, but they're not doing it verbally. So I guess if you want to say communication skills, you're right. The bigger thing is verbal communication skills. Because I think young adults today could definitely communicate. They can text, they can Snapchat, they can do all this stuff. They can do great things on Instagram and tell stories visually through Snapchat stories and Instagram stories. But where they lack is the communication skills that are verbal. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I never really thought of it like that. I always just kind of thought of communicating as like a verbal thing. But when you phrase it like that, I guess we are probably the most communicative generation of all time. 
like when I was growing up, I would never talk to my friends like after school was over. Like maybe I had one friend on my street that would like ride bikes with me till the sun went down. But then that was the end of the day. And like to call your friend was like a weird thing to do. You'd have to get the phone off the wall and like remember their number and then like their mom would answer and like you'd <laughs> ask for, you know, your friend. Like that was weird. So you like wouldn't want to do it. But like today it's like kids are texting on their phone all night. Like go to bed, wake up and they're texting each other. And so I, the communication is definitely there at a level that was never there even, you know, 15 years ago when I was a teenager. So looking at the jump from Target to, to working for yourself, one of the things I'm curious about as far as like tangible things that I'm sure people wonder about are like from a benefits and investment vehicle perspective, like was that a concern for you when you were jumping from working at a, a corporate job where I'm sure you had, you know, fairly solid benefits as a store manager to turning off onto your own? You know, it's one of those funny things that, yes, I stressed about benefits for so long. My wife and I had all these discussions like, what are we going to do for health insurance? What are we going to do for health insurance? And like, it's like not even an issue once you're actually self-employed. Like it gets all like hyped up in your mind. Like it's this weird thing. And it's like, well, you know, like at Target, Target pays a portion of it or your employer pays a portion and you pay a portion. It's just when you're self-employed, you pay the whole thing. And it sucks because, you know, without getting into politics, the marketplace and all of our health insurance really isn't set up very well. And it doesn't follow the basic rules of economics. But on the flip side, I actually did Cobra and we did Cobra for a year through Target and I paid the full amount because like first we were very uncomfortable with it. And then, yeah, we just bought a marketplace exchange and, and the business pays for it. And, you know, it actually all works out pretty well. The cool thing is with Target and being self-employed, I'd done a SEP IRA and Target's 401k for a long time. My SEP IRA is for the side business, the Target's 401k, and I was maxing that out when I was at Target. And then when I left, I just set up a solo 401k and started using that for the business as a whole. And, you know, you save for retirement. I had an HSA at Target. I have an HSA after Target. I don't know. Nothing. It's not nothing crazy. Like it gets in your mind. I think it's like a psychological thing. You come up with all these excuses and you're trying to, like you say, we're thinking about risk and like, oh, all the unknown. But it's really pretty straightforward. It sucks. It sucks writing that check because you don't usually think about the full cost of your health care. But it's definitely just pretty straightforward and how to do it. And are there any benefits of the that people don't realize for investing as a, you know, owning your own business. Are, are those investment vehicles, are there any of them that are actually better as working for yourself than if you're investing in them through your employer? Yeah. Well, I mean, the solo 401k is a phenomenal vehicle. The reason is, is, you know, you probably have your 401k at work. And when you think of maxing, you think of your 18,500, or if this goes live next year, I think it's 19,000 in 2019. So you think of that's my max. Well, when you're self-employed, your max is 55,000 mm. um, because you get to have both sides of the equation. You get your elective contribution of 18,5, and then you get your profit sharing contribution at your work. That'd be your employer match. You know, your employer just matches a percentage. But when you're self-employed, you can do a profit sharing contribution. And it's like a formula, but it's like roughly 25% of your uh, net income up to the $55,000 mark total for your 401k can go into that. So you can definitely save a lot more in your 401k. Not to say that you couldn't do that in your employer if your employer really had a generous matching program or something. <laughs> and, but I've done the research. I think there's like 10 like possible, like really generous ones in the country, like that would give you like $3 for every dollar you save kind of thing. But like most employers don't do that for you. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, I would love to work for that company. <laughs> yeah. I think like, I want to say like Qualcomm's one of them. I can't remember what there is, but there's a few well-known companies that like really have generous 401ks if you could take advantage of it. <laughs> and all 55,000 of those dollars, they're just like any other 401k treated the same way tax wise. Yeah. So, I mean, you get, you can have your Roth option, but your Roth is only on your elective. So your Roth is only on that 18.5, but the matching is always pre-tax. So you could do a regular and then the whole thing is pre-tax or you could do a Roth. So the tricky thing is like, I have this 401k and there's actually two accounts. There's a Roth account and a regular account, right? Because that's just how all the brokerages set it up. Like, <laughs> you know, and technically if you do that at your employer, you have two accounts as well. All right. So I'm curious, Robert, it seems like you're enjoying yourself doing the whole entrepreneurial thing. Clearly you're set to leave Target doing good. You got all your systems set up. You got all your new benefits. So what do the next couple of years look like for you? Do you have any goals or dreams or passions or 
Yeah, like, I mean, one of the big reasons why I left Target is not because I disliked it. It was just because I didn't feel like I was living my values. So the only drawback that I felt if retail was that you had to work nights and weekends and holidays. When you're running a side business, that's great schedule because I had weekdays off. I had days off. When you work at night, you have the day off. So you can get a lot of things done for your side hustle on a retail schedule. But now I have kids and my wife and I feel like, you know, I wasn't necessarily living my values of do I really, if I really care about my family and that's what's most important to me, why am I like not only working this weird schedule at Target that takes me away from them and then I'm side hustling on the other times when I don't need to be, right? And so for me, it was really about assessing what my values were, where I'm spending my time. And that's where I decided that, you know, it was, I really need to leave Target and there's no reason for me to continue doing this that just takes me away. And so honestly, I, I'm loving, you know, self-employment because it really is flexible around my schedule. And I mean, I take my kids to school every day. I pick them up from school. I'm there for events. I hang out with my wife. We go on lunch dates. Like, you know, we can do all kinds of things that go on vacation. I don't have to get approval from my boss. And like, granted, like I said, I like my boss. I liked working from him, but it was like, I still had to like send an email and say like, hey, like two months in advance, like, can I request this week off? You know, and it, it was just silly. You don't have to do that anymore. Like if I want to go somewhere next weekend, we can just go somewhere next weekend. Right. And so that's really enjoyable. And so when I look at the next couple of years, like really that's what it's all about right now. My kids are young, starting school, like they just want to be there and hanging out with them and with the family. And is San Diego going to be, you think you're kind of forever location or, cause I mean, that's an expensive area I'm assuming. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny because if you take out the cost of housing in San Diego, San Diego is on par with every other place in this whole entire country. If you make under $200,000 a year. In fact, if you make less than $80,000 a year, you're better off living in California than any other state in the United States because your taxes will be next to nothing. Your cost of living could be a challenge, but you know, there's so many creative ways to get around that. And you get so many benefits that like you just wouldn't get elsewhere in this country. Job security, unemployment benefits, you know, granted we pay up the ass in taxes, but the problem with California is that you get in this weird tax yield curve. And so once you get to about 180, 200, the taxes start going up to like, you know, 8%, 9%, 10%, 13%, like very quickly. But when you're on that low end, it's actually pretty reasonable. And then when you add in things like, I mean, we're paying the same for groceries as you are pretty much everywhere else. You're paying the same for all these basics everywhere else. It's pretty interesting. It's just housing. You just have to get over that initial shock of housing prices. But like I said, there's creative ways to get around that. You can live farther out, you know, different things. For me, I mean, I look at some of the tax-free states. They look nice, but I see myself staying here. Because once, you, Like I said, the house is paid for. Once you exclude the cost of housing, everything else is like super reasonable and, and nothing's out of the norm for me. Yeah. I mean, we both live in Massachusetts and I live, you know, fairly close to the city in Boston and I kind of see the same thing. I mean, yeah, housing's a little more expensive, but being in the military, you know, I've moved around a decent bit and I just came from Colorado and a lot of people would think Colorado Springs would be a, you know, drastically cheaper than, than Boston, but it's really just, you know, the couple hundred, like $300 a month different in rent. And after that, it, it all equals out the same. So I, I, I think that's an interesting thing to note and a misconception that people are scared to live near, near these big cities because of the cost of living when really it's not that different. And then also there's normally in the big cities, you don't feel like you have to go on vacation as often because it's a fun place to be anyway. And there's all kinds of free things and public transportation and it just kind of goes on and on. Well, and on the flip side, I would say this for the people on the path to FI. You know, once you're FI and you have the opportunity to go to a low cost of living area, if that suits you. But on the flip side, the reason why cost of living is so high in these cities is because there are job prospects and income opportunities that you have nowhere else in this country. Like you could go to, you know, different states. You can go to Iowa, Wyoming, Montana and live in an Airstream trailer for super cheap. But you're probably not going to have a $200,000 a year job. And you could get a $200,000 a year job in New York, San Francisco, LA, San Diego, Washington, DC, you know, all these high cost of living areas. Now, if you have the wonderful privilege of working online, working remotely, like go wherever you want to go. But if you're still working that nine to five job and you have an opportunity to go here, like I would take it for the income potential early in your life, even though the cost of living may be higher. 
Because like I said, there's, I mean, you guys talk about this all the time. There's so many hacks to save on housing. There's so many hacks to everything else. Like if you really want to get creative, but you don't see an income potential, like get to a big city because the income potential will be there, at least in traditional employment. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the listeners' wheels are going to be turning and they're going to be like, ooh, maybe I can uh, go do the retail path in a big city. There's just, there's so many ways and so many options. And I really like how you kind of have hit on so many different levers this episode between the side hustles, between spending intentionally. I know you said you're not frugal, but you spend with intention. You don't buy things you don't need. And we don't keep things we don't need. So like we, you know, we just recently moved. Here's a fun one. So instead of hiring movers, we sold everything. (laughs) sold everything sold all three of our beds we sold our dining room set we sold our couches and then we just bought new ones when we got to our new house you know what the difference between the two was that i what i spent on the new stuff versus what we sold everything for was about 1500 to 2000 bucks which would have been the cost of movers (laughs) like and like you know so like you know there's just different ways you can think about things like i have no emotional attachment to anything in my house like everything we have it serves a purpose it's functional you know it's just very intentional and i think that's that's important i mean that's just another prime example of why in every situation you just need to sit down and do a little math on it and not just make these wild assumptions because that's what everybody else does i think that's you know just one of the key tenets of this whole financial independence path is run these numbers. Maybe working at Target is an awesome career path. You know, maybe buying new things when you move into a house is the responsible thing to do. Like, don't just take those social norms. And so I think that's an interesting one that I've never heard. Yeah, I think that's it. It's just being intentional. I I love FI for, you know, it's focus on, you know, personal finance and spending intentionally. Minimalism is huge. Don't buy stuff you don't need. And then when you actually have to go to move, it's super easy because you just have what you can fit in your car. Like we just had our wardrobes, a few little pieces of art. And like, that's about it. Like not a ton of stuff to take. It's, it's easy. So Robert, it's getting close to wrapping up, but is there anything that we haven't really covered yet that you'd like to talk about or share on the podcast? No, I mean, I think we covered a lot of it. I think the big thing, the takeaway that I always like to have is it, the biggest thing is getting organized. Like we can't do a lot of this stuff without being organized. You can't run a side hustle and a day job without being organized. You can't make these intentional choices about your money if you don't know what your spending is. So, you know, getting organized for me is huge. Tracking your spending, being organized with your things, keeping your house clutter free, like all of that this organizational piece just goes a long way. I think it's one of my underlying tenants to success. And do you have any like kind of go-to tools for helping with that organization? Oh man. I mean, financially, I am so upset right now with all the personal finance software. I know we're going to talk a lot about personal capital and mint and like none of them do it for me. I'm actually back on a Quicken like desktop software binge (laughs) right now. And I've been trying it out for the blog. Um, And it actually like might be my recommendation. I mean, you know, if this goes live and it's not like I'm still trying it out before I recommend it. But like, I've been so disappointed with all of the personal finance softwares out there that like from an organizational standpoint. So that's where I'm at that. And then honestly, I I use Google Calendar. I use Asana for my business. Those things keep me on check with all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, even with all the, you know, the software tooling and stuff out there, I mean, I, I use personal capital to track my investments for keeping up with actually where all my stuff is and what I spent money on. I still love my custom Excel spreadsheet over any tool that's out there because, you know, they're making assumptions on things and they can't see that third layer of, oh, somebody just borrowed some, you know, you bought something for somebody else and they paid you back and now it screws everything they have going on up. So I get what you're saying about having a little bit more granular control over it that some of these things just can't give you. And I'm not a spreadsheet person. Like I hate them. Like I know there's hacks to like do like you can have your mint data and port it into a spreadsheet. And there's uh, I forget what that company is, Tiller, where you can have all this like fancy like spreadsheet stuff done for your money. But I'm not a spreadsheet person. I don't like them. So I do like a tool like my ideal personal finance software is Quicken 2007 for PC. I bet there is one listener out there that might give you the comment that says yes, because they know exactly what I'm talking about. J.D. Roth came on and he still uses 2007 Quicken. (laughs) That's because that is the gold standard of personal finance software (laughs) that is out there. And I'm just like, it's like embarrassing that there is so many fintech and startup companies out there that have not been able to replicate (laughs) it. Even Quicken themselves, like they've spun off from Intuit, like 
seriously go re- rebuild your own software <laughs> from 2007. Like, I don't understand why this is so hard. You're going to be flipping copies of uh, Quick in 2007 on eBay because it's such a sought after tool. <laughs> yeah. It is like it, sadly, it's like not supported anymore. Is the problem? So if you ever try to like download, it's like a pain in the butt. Like, but yeah, it, it's it's the gold standard of personal finance software. <laughs> All right, Robert. So for our listeners who want to connect, maybe get to know you a little bit better, hear more about your story, or just want some general tips, want to read some good advice, some solid college investor stuff, where's the best place they can reach you? Yeah, so you could go to the blog at thecollegeinvestor.com. If you like to listen, we have the College Investor Audio Show which is our blog content translated into audio format for you. And then you can hit us up on YouTube as well at The College Investor. So wherever, if you like to read, listen, watch, we got you. All right, Robert, we always like to ask, what is the most pivotal and tangible tip that you can give people on their journey to financial independence? For me, and I think I tell this a lot to people on their journey to financial independence, is it's not all about frugality and minimalism. There's this whole other side of the personal finance equation that is about earning and don't dismiss your power to earn. Like we live in this amazing world today where on your phone at 2 a.m. you can go onto an app and make money in the middle of the night because you can't sleep. So if you are on this path to FI and you don't necessarily want to live a totally frugal lifestyle, you can also focus on earning more. And I think it's one of those things that is talked about but I think it should be the primary focus of FI, not frugality. Interesting. I like it. <laughs> All right, Robert. This is the final question of the podcast, and it is the wild card question. <laughs> and I didn't prepare for this. Justin didn't prepare. And nope. you definitely didn't prepare for this. Are you ready? Well, how did you guys not prepare if you wrote the question? We don't prepare. We, we actually don't. don't. <laughs> is there like a question generator online that like gives you a random <laughs> question? Like, No, it's all good. I'm ready. If a magic wizard came up to you tomorrow and said he would give you $50 million to turn all of the fingers on your dominant hand into slugs, would you take it? All the fingers in my dominant hand into <laughs> slugs? No, I would not take $50 million. Like, you, no. No, because it's not worth it. Like, and I, I think the FI lesson here is that, you know, there's diminishing returns on your net worth. So it's like, you know, getting from one hump to the next hump is important. One hump to the next hump is important. But like $50 million at this point in my life doesn't serve any more purpose than the amount I currently have. And definitely not worth slugs on my hand, right? Like, so no, I would not take that bet. Well, Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show and just sharing all your knowledge and wisdom. And thanks again for coming on. Yeah, Robert, thanks again. And uh, I love those tips. And, uh, you know, maybe everyone needs to go out there and join Target. Or, you know, just like I said, (laughs) don't dismiss working at a job you love. It's worth it. Man, Justin, as always, another awesome episode. And it really just opened my eyes to possibilities that I honestly just didn't even see. I had the blinders up. I did not think that you could make $100,000 as a store manager at like Target, Walmart, or Kohl's. I think that was just absolutely incredible. What do you think? Yeah, and I mean, he talked about actually getting up closer to 200000 I mean, like crazy numbers. And this is coming from a guy who was raised by two parents in a very traditional and they had these very traditional government jobs. So this was not somebody who was necessarily like, you know, looking for these, you know, crazy angles or entrepreneurial angles, but he had that entrepreneurial spirit from a young age, whether it be, you know, selling the candy bars on the playground to all these side hustles, he would do at estate sales. But he just kind of like, you know, he saw this job he had when he was 16 and he stuck with it and he kept going up the ladder and just gave us another angle how you could hit financial independence. I mean, there's just so many ways you can do this. And one of the things I really liked that he focused on was he kind of gave us a playbook to basically how to get any job. He like really highlighted because he did so much hiring in his day as a manager at Target. And he said the skill that most people lacked was just basic people skills, like being courteous, being kind, being able to communicate well verbally. And so I think this is something that all of our listeners and maybe you and I can both take away, Justin, is that having this type of skill set, having the verbal communication, which I'm sure we are probably getting a lot better at since we've been doing this podcast, is such a huge skill and it helps grow your network. It helps you land pretty much any job he was saying. And that is the differentiator. It's not the hard skills. It's the soft skills, the human skills. 
Yeah, and another skill that he talked about, and I've started seeing this theme as we've done this podcast, is understanding what makes your boss happy, making your boss happy. And I think if anything, if you take away anything, like remember that like you are trying to progress in your company or you're trying to become more valuable. You're trying to be perceived as more valuable. The person that you can put the most influence over is your boss. So if you can show that you're making your boss's life easier, then you have just really raised the roof on your value and therefore, you know, increase your earning potential. And what I really like is that Robert's always like one step ahead of the game. So he's working full-time at Target, making like 200K. He starts this blog in 2009 when he's 24. He's still running it to this day. He's making as much or more than his day job, absolutely crushing it. And he's still doing stuff like flipping blow dryers on the side online. I just think that's the funniest (laughs) thing. But you do see that time and time again where people stick to either their frugality roots or their entrepreneurial roots, whatever got them to where they were. That's the thing that like keeps going and that keeps them driving. I just thought that was so cool. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's very common. Like, you know, you have a lot of people who say like, oh my goodness, you spent all this time stressing about like flipping hair dryers or whatever it is. Well, that would be true if they were stressing about it. But the the truth is that people like Kim or whether it be people like me and you who are trying to figure out cheaper ways to do things, it's not stressful. It's like a game. It's it's something you enjoy. And that is a huge part of this to me. Like if you can gamify it, if you can make it a part of your daily life, if you can figure out a way to look at situations and think, I want to maximize that. And that's like an internal competition for me. And it's not stressful. It's just like a game of Mario Kart. Like, can you imagine, (laughs) can you imagine if like someone said, oh, isn't that so stressful thinking about trying to beat your best lap time? Like, of course it's not stressful. It's fun. You're trying to beat a personal high. Like it's just a game to a lot of those people and to a lot of us. Like if you can look at it as a game and say, look, this is the way everyone else is playing the game. I want to get a new high score. I want to do this cheaper, better, more efficiently. Then it's not stressful anymore. One of my favorite quotes actually from the episode was when Robert was like, other people like spending money on cars. Other people like doing this, doing that. He's like, I like making money. That's my hobby. (laughs) So I think that perfectly encapsulates what you were just saying there. And then Robert kind of finished out the show. Whoa. What was that, Justin? Well, that was a call to action, Cody. And this week's call to action is a great one. So I think it's a little different than some of the ones we've covered before, but it's it's all about what Robert was saying, and that is increasing your communication skills. And there's so many ways you can do this. Not everyone's going to want to start up a podcast, but there's so there's a lot of other cool things. And some of your jobs, maybe that is volunteering to like, hey, I'll take the presentation at the next briefing, or maybe it's a local Toastmasters club. Or maybe, you know, it's just getting online and creating some random YouTube video tutorials. Just get used to talking to people and doing so in an effective way and doing so in a clear way and just working on that skill set because regardless of the occupation you go into and the hard skills that are involved, you're going to need to talk to someone. And so that's the call to action this week. Work on those interpersonal skills and those communication skills. That is an awesome call to action, Justin, and it has certainly helped me in my career and definitely in Robert's career as well. And if you'd like to follow along with Robert, the things he's doing, all the awesome resources and content he's coming up with, you can find more about him and contact him at thefiveshow.com slash Robert. And speaking of getting your communication skills up, although it's not verbal communication, join our Facebook group at thefiveshow.com slash community. Maybe you can meet someone. Maybe you can set up a 15-minute phone call if someone has a specific expertise. Just get used to being out of your comfort zone, communicating with new people. It'll really help you out in the end. So as always, thanks for listening. See you on next week's episode of The Fi Show. 